Welcome to Sedaris. Thanks for being with us on this holiday weekend. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. It's the beginning of Advent, so uh, we're going to do one more sermon tonight in Ephesians, and then we'll be uh, doing three weeks of uh, more Advent-focused sermons, preparing our hearts and our minds for the coming Lord. So um, if you'd pray, I'm just going to ask God to be with us tonight as we study His Word. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this community, these people, and this place to come out of the cold and the rain and to study your word. We ask that you'd speak to us tonight through your word, that you'd fill our hearts and minds with the spirit that we might see what you have for us today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We love you and we thank you. We're so thankful for all the ways in which you fill us up. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got a Bible, would you grab it, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. You can also Google Ephesians and look it up on your phone. We'll be using the English Standard Version ESV. If you do look it up on your phone, it's also printed in your bulletin, at least these verses. But we will be flipping in and out of chapter 1. So if you're able, highly recommend uh, looking it up in a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those Bibles that's in the seat in front of you. That's a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to, to have that in your personal library. Use it often. It is the revelation of God to us. So, as we'll see, you'll see as we go, but... Um, this week got me thinking about great stories, and uh, I think there's a few things that jump out at me what, what make stories great. Um, I think great stories have a lot of vivid contrast. I think vivid contrast allows us to be drawn into a story. I think it's important. I think the other thing is big shifts. Big shifts from here to here. I mean, just think of the movie Pretty Woman. Dramatic shift. Dramatic contrast. Another thing that I think great stories need to have, in addition to vivid contrast, big shifts, is, I think, uh, this idea of a great rescue. I think we long for stories that talk of rescue, don't we? We love a good rescue story. And we all respond to stories that have these elements, contrast, big shift, rescue. And I think the reason that we do is because we're created in the image of God. And God has a story, and His, his story includes all of these. And since we're created in His image, our hearts are predisposed to when we hear these kinds of stories we can't help but tune in. We can't help but lean forward what is going to happen next because the gospel is literally written on our hearts. I've got a great story, one of my favorite stories. I'm going to share it with you. And it's got all, all of these elements. It's a story of a friend of mine from high school. His name was J.R. He transferred in uh, to our high school our high school, which is predominantly white, and JR is an African American, and he moved here to the Pacific Northwest from Georgia. And that's a big contrast, right? And he was one of the only African American students at our school. Um, I met him, he joined the basketball team, though he'd never played basketball. Uh, organized basketball before coming. Part of the reason was is because he spent most of his free time when he was living in Georgia uh, working to help pay the bills for his family. He worked on a watermelon farm. And now he's living in an upscale suburb of Seattle, Washington. It's a big shift. And JR is one of my favorite people. Uh, amongst other things, he can literally jump over a car. <laughs> I'm not joking you. He can jump over a car. 
and he's done it, and he was in the Issaquah newspaper, a picture of him jumping over a car. Uh, but he's got a heart of gold. He's a great guy. And one summer, uh, we became good friends with JR. He sort of entered into our friend group. Um, and one of the things me and my friends used to do almost every summer in high school is we'd drive up uh, north uh, and we would float the river, the Nooksack River. Has anybody floated the Nooksack? Yeah, come on. Great little river to float in the middle of the woods. Uh, you wouldn't just stumble upon it. Uh, it's a great thing. And, and so we're floating the Nooksack River. Say, JR, you got to come with us, man. You're going to love this. It's going to be great. And he says, okay, what do I need to bring? I said, well, we'll get some inner tubes. We need inner tubes. So JR shows up uh, with this inflatable uh, inner tube that she'd buy like at Target or something, uh, probably 15 bucks or so, called the River Rat. Not the kind of inner tube you need when you're floating a river with a rocky bottom. So <laughs> we were a little bit worried because JR wasn't quite prepared. The other thing we found out when we got up there was that JR was not a strong swimmer. Luckily, I had brought a couple life jackets, so JR is from Georgia, and it never gets too hot in Seattle, right? And the river water is cold, and JR, so we also brought him a wetsuit, and so he's got a wetsuit, he's got a life jacket, he's got his river rat tube, everyone else has like actual rubber tire tubes, you know, like semi-tubes, and we're like cruising, and he's on his river rat, and it's, and he's nervous as all get out. And we're floating the river, and the current's taking us down, and it seems like everybody's having a fun time. Jared's a little bit jumpy, as you might imagine. He's never done this before. This is, uh, this is not normal for him. This is not what he normally does with his time. It's like, why are all these white people floating down a river for fun? But he came, he, had, he was having a great time, until we came to this little tricky spot in the river, and there was a fallen log that was kind of blocking half of the river, and everyone's swimming to, uh, you know, paddling to the left of the river, or, or to the left of the log. And JR, I don't know if he didn't see it coming, I'm not sure if he just thought he would drift around it, but he gets sucked up underneath the log. As instinct kicks in, he's not a swimmer, and so he jumps on the log, grabs around it, and so his top half is out of the water, but his legs are being sucked under the log. And it's kind of scary. I paddle to the shore, and I see him, and, he, and he's obviously um, uh, in trouble, and he cries out. He says, Help! And I wade across, and, and the interesting, funny part of the story is the water was really only about two or three feet deep, so I could wade all the way over, but, but the instinct, the panic is going, right? And I, I, I rescue JR, and feel free to clap, and um, I bring him to shore, the river rat is floating down uh, the river, and we go pick that up, and we continue on our day, and JR is so thankful, so, so thankful, and so thankful that he comes up with a rap that he sings about how I saved him from danger, and my last name's Evanger, and so it went something like, danger, Evanger, <laughs> you got me off the log, <laughs> and there's an old song, if you're old enough, you know, you might recognize um, a song there, but he's come, it was sweet. It was, it was sweet. I was, I was like, I got my own rap. This is awesome. Great rescue. So the day ends up, <laughs> Jared never came with us again to float, but it's one of my favorite stories. And I just love JR, and I love this story, and it's got it all. Vivid contrast, it's got this big shift, it's got this rescue. And what we're going to see when we come here to Ephesians chapter 2 is that all these components are present here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And the first thing that you'll notice, and before we read it, I want to just point this out, is that there's a huge shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2. If you've been with us, we spent some time in chapter 1, and this is all about what God has done. 
God has done all of this. This is who God is. And so I just want to read with you the end of chapter 1, which says this, starting in verse 20. Uh, God did this and that, working His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. He's talking about Christ Jesus. He's seated now at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Verse 21, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here is who Christ is. He sits above all. His name is above all. He is in and through everything. Everything is under his dominion. He sits at the Father's right hand and he rules. And it's amazing. Now watch the shift. Chapter 2, verse 1. And as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See the shift? Christ. The all in all. And what about us? The shift from God to humanity. We were dead. We were nothing. We were dead. So we've got this big shift. And what we'll see is there's this vivid contrast between who God is and who we are. What God is capable of and what we are capable of. And then we'll see this great theme of rescue. That we have been saved. Let me read now. The whole passage, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here it is. But God. You've heard me say that. The best words you'll ever hear. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, You have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see that shift? You see that rescue? But God did that. He says, by grace you have been saved. Verse 5. You have gone from death to life. You were out of luck. And then you were rescued. Now how does this rescue happen? How does salvation work? It is by grace. It is by grace. Look again with me at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is a verse you should memorize. Just mark it down, memorize it. It's a great verse. Because this verse shows us what's so different about the way of Jesus. So different from every other way. Because there's really only two ways the world knows of to be saved. The first option is by works. 
The first option is by works, and, and pretty much every world religion functions this way. In Buddhism, you work to cease desiring, and when you do, you'll find salvation. In Confucianism, you seek education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, and your good works save you. In Hinduism, you work to detach yourself from the ego and unite yourself with the divine oneness. And this is your salvation. In New Ageism, you're working to gain an enlightened, evolved perspective. And this is what saves you. In Taoism, you're working to align yourself with the Tao to make peace and harmony. This is what saves you. Many secular people today, many of which I know and you know, they think that being a good person saves them. Maybe you are there. Maybe you're still in that place. And that's okay, because this is what the mind of man comes up with on its own. These are works-based religions, works-based ways of seeing the world. Very, very common Do this, don't do that, and you will be saved from whatever your fate is that's set before you. That's option number one. Then there's option number two. And option number two is called grace. Our works don't save us, but Jesus' works save us. So you see, it's not that works-based religion is way off. It's just the object. Whose works are we talking about? If we're talking about my works or your works, it's not enough. But if we're talking about the works of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, those works are enough. And so you could see how we get close, we realize that we're not there yet and we need to do something but we just don't know whose works to have faith in. The option number two is, by grace we have been saved through faith in Jesus. It's something that God did on our behalf. That's how we're saved. By grace through faith. Now, faith is not a work. It's not that when you have faith, you're somehow smarter than everybody else, or that you figured it out. No, faith itself is a gift. It's not a work. And it is the vehicle through which we are saved, but it is by grace that we're saved. Let me try to explain this. Grayson loves milk. That's my son. Many of you might like milk, too. But Grayson loves milk. <laughs> so by grace, Grayson receives milk. From his mother, Allie. It's a gift. It's a gift. Now, when he was first born, it was through breastfeeding. Now it's through bottle. But it would be weird or foolish to worship the bottle, right? Through which the milk comes. Or even to worship the milk itself. Because the milk isn't giving itself, the milk is a gift given by someone else, which is Grayson's mother. So Allie is the one by whom Grayson receives life, sustenance, and more life. In the same way, it is by grace, by God, that we have salvation. And it works through faith. That is the vehicle. But we should not worship faith or salvation. We should worship God. It is His grace by which we are saved. Is that making sense? We often get this wrong. And, and one of the things that I hear all the time, and I say it myself, is we ask people, tell me about your faith. 
See what's wrong here? What we should say is tell me about your God. Who's your God? What's he like? Faith doesn't save you. God does. It's through faith that we're connected to God. And all that is by grace. So God saves us. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. It's a gift. And we have it when we trust, when we have faith in the works of Jesus, not in our own works, not in our own good deeds, not in our own striving, not in our own intellect, but in Jesus. And, and, and when we do this, we, we transfer, we shift our faith from whatever it was in before to Jesus. And when that happens, we change and we go from death to life. Look at verse 6. It says this. Even when you... Sorry, verse, uh, verse 5. Even when you were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And He raised us up with Him. He raised us up. Now look at how and why God does this. There's three words in there I want you to see. God is rich in, this is verse 4, rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead, He made us alive together with Christ. We have been saved by grace. Mercy, love, and grace. Mercy, love, and grace. Do we understand that? We're going we're gonna to talk in just a second to try to open up a fuller understanding of mercy, love, and grace. It's God's mercy, it's His love, and it's His grace that saves us. Now, let me say this. We are saved past, present, and future we are saved past from all sin when Christ died on the cross and He took upon Him the penalty of sin. Now that doesn't mean we still don't wrestle with feelings of guilt, but ultimately we're no longer guilty. We have been saved in the past when we come by faith to God's grace. We're saved in the present, so that's the penalty of sin, that's the past. The present, we're saved from the power of sin. Here's what this means. Sin used to rule over us. It used to dictate to us how we would live and what we would do. And we're told that we have freedom from the power of sin in our lives right now. So you talk to many Christians who struggled mightily with something, and once they became a Christian, once they, by grace through faith, experienced the salvation of God, they no longer felt enslaved to that sin. It doesn't mean that it never crops back up or that there's seasons where it comes back into the fold, but the power of sin is and should be diminished in your life because of the salvation of God. Now we're saved in the future as well. And this is salvation from the presence of sin. Right now we live in a time when Sin is still all around us. And we know that. We feel that, right? We feel that contrast between the way we hope things could be and the way that they actually are. We see it all around us. But there's coming a time, this is the great promise of Jesus, there's coming a time when all sin will be removed. Can you imagine the world in which no sin exists? Can you imagine a world in which the presence of sin no longer exists. There'll be no police. <laughs> There'll be no soldiers. No need for hospitals. Some of you will be out of a job. No politicians. Praise be to God. Because sin will be removed. 
but we're not there yet. But that's our great hope, that there's salvation, past, present, and future. And so to understand mercy and grace and love and to understand fully this salvation by grace through faith, past, present, and future, uh, this amazing thing that we have access to through Jesus, we're not going to fully understand it unless we understand what we're saved from. It's one of the weird sayings, things that Christians say. They, you, know, you might ask somebody, are you saved? And if somebody doesn't know that sort of nomenclature, they'll, they'll look at you and they'll say what? Saved from what? I didn't know I need, needed saving. And so it's so important when we talk about these things of, 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 of mercy and grace and love of God that we understand what he's rescued us from. Because if we don't fully understand what we've been rescued from, we won't understand the true magnitude of this gift. So, Paul tells us what these things are that we need rescue from. Would you read verses 1 to 3 with me? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying, our, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's seven things in here that we're saved from. I want to walk through them. What are we saved from? First, death. And what he's talking about here in verse 1 is not that we are dead physically, necessarily, though we are all dying. He's talking about spiritually dead, disconnected from God. And it ultimately will play itself out in our physical bodies as well. You can think of a cell phone. You unplug your cell phone, it's going to last for a bit, but eventually... It will die. This is us. We are dead. In our natural state, before the salvation of God, we are dead. Our soul is dead. It is no longer as it was meant to be. It is not full of life. And it's dead because of our trespasses and sins. This is two and three. Now, they're not exactly the same thing. A trespass is when you overstep a boundary. So, you know, you accidentally, you're walking through the woods and you accidentally cross a boundary. And then, in many states, the owner of that boundary has the right to shoot you. You've got to be careful. I lived in Texas for a while. You never want to just walk around in the woods in Texas because they'll take you up on that trespassing law because we've overstepped a boundary. This is what we call a sin of commission, meaning we have done something we were not meant to do, we were not supposed to do, we have crossed a boundary, and we have this book, the Bible, because it helps draw the boundary lines for us. God has told us, here are the boundaries to not cross. And He's told us these things not because He's some malevolent dictator, he is a loving God, like a parent who sets boundaries for their kids. Grayson loves to climb on everything, and if I set no boundaries, and Allie probably wishes I set more boundaries, he could really hurt himself. And so I set boundaries as a parent, and God sets boundaries for us, not because he just wants to keep us from happiness and joy and fun and all those things. It's because he knows what's best for us. He's created us. He loves us. He sees beyond this present moment, and he knows. So he sets boundaries for us. And when we cross those boundaries, we trespass. Now the other thing is sin. Sin is actually missing the mark. This is what we call a sin of omission, meaning we were supposed to do something, and we failed to do it. We missed the mark. We miss the mark. And so you have sins of commission and sins of omission. Another way to say this is we are both rebels and failures. We're rebels and 
failures. And the result of this is death, spiritual separation from the God who created us and who wants to be in relationship to us but cannot allow us as sinners and trespassers into His holy presence. Number four. Number four. goes on to say, in which you once walked, sin and trespasses, in which, you, in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. What is he saying here? What he's saying, anytime you see this word in the New Testament, it's not talking just about the world generally, it's talking about the ways of the world. Which is to say, and world is an appropriate term, the majority opinion. The way of the world. This is just the way things are done. And you are just following the course of the world. You can think of the course of the world like a fast-flowing river. And it's just everybody swept into it. The current is strong. It's pulling people down the river. And it's very natural to just sort of float into it and go along with wherever it takes you. That's what it means to follow the course of the world. And we're saved from that current. We're saved from that force. Number five, we're saved also from the prince of the power of the air. And the course of the world is following that prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And here, Paul is talking about Satan. Satan and his demons. And who Satan is, is he's a fallen angel who was created to worship and glorify God. But he chose himself, and he fell from grace, and he works against God. And he works in the sons of disobedience, which are all those of us, all of us, who are born in the line of Adam, who was the first to rebel against God. And Satan is at work, his demons are at work, and they're working against God. We're saved from that. Number six, not just that. And let me just say this, start of verse three. Among whom we all once lived. We all. It's so important. Highlight that. We all. We all. Every single human being that's ever existed was in this state prior to coming to faith in Jesus by grace. We were all like this. And we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is the sixth thing that we're saved from, the passions and desires of the flesh and the body. We have, this is understanding you get in Scripture, an old self or an original self, you could say, what we're born into this world with. And that self is in its very nature, in its very core, opposed to God. We inherited this, as I said, from our forefather, Adam, who rebelled and sinned against God. And so we are born into this world in this natural self, which has its passions and its desires, and we've all felt that, right? We've all felt these things that push us towards things that are counter to the boundaries that God has set, that are against what we're created, designed to do, which is worship God. And this is what he's talking about. And they tend to rule us. Now here's the thing. When we come to faith in Jesus, it does not mean that that old self completely goes away. Actually, what happens between now and the future salvation where the presence of sin is removed, where we're resurrected into new bodies and we live with Jesus and God and in full harmony, we live this coexistence with our old nature with all of its passions and its desires and our new nature. And we're given new passions and new desires. And our hope, we could call this our heavenly self, it is our new self, is that that grows up in us, that we feed that through the reading of the Word, through prayer, through communion with the saints. 
and of course communion with God, that we build up our new self, that it does not give in to the old self. But the old self is always there. And I feel it. You probably felt it like me. Uh, maybe you're in the shower. That's where I do all my great thinking is in the shower. All the grace of God pours over me in the shower, and I come up with these great ideas, and, and usually they're great ideas of charity and love and forgiveness, and, and maybe I think of a great thing that I'd like to do for people that I care about. I want to serve them, and I get out of the shower, and I'm so excited about it, and then the day wears on, and I start to feel... And I start to think of all the reasons why maybe that's not a good idea. Well, that'd be a lot of work. Oh, that'd take a lot of time. Oh, nobody would know I had that thought in the shower. Unless I preach about it. And I usually, maybe not usually, but often talk myself out of this very good thing that I believe was put in me by God, the new self, but the passions and desires of the old self went out. Have you ever had that experience? That's the warring of the old and the new. The passions and desires of the flesh and the body against the new self created anew in Christ Jesus. But we are saved from that. We are given freedom from that. And the seventh thing is wrath. Paul says this, And you were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. When we are rebels, rebels get their due. And God says He will remove from His presence, all ungodliness and all sin. And so if we are in our former state, our natural state, the old self, we are children of wrath. And wrath is not something we like to talk about in church anymore. We don't think it's loving enough. But if wrath is real, and the Bible talks about wrath 600 times in the Old and New Testament. And Jesus Himself talked more about heaven and hell than anyone else. Then it's the most unloving thing we could do to not talk about it. To not talk about the judgment of God against all ungodliness, against all sin, against all those who are not made new in Christ, who are children of wrath. But we're saved from it. See this vivid contrast? We were children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. Now, we are children of God. Sons of righteousness. It's a beautiful, a beautiful promise for all those who trust in Jesus that we were all once over here and we've had this shift and we're now over here. Something you want to ask yourself. If this is what I'm saved from, if this is how it works, am I saved? Have I put my trust in Jesus? If by grace through faith you are connected to the work of Jesus, His cross and His resurrection, if you are still trying to work out your own salvation, stop. You're caught under that log. And the world is pulling at you. The current is pulling you down. And you feel that, don't you? The immense pressure to just go along with the world. To let it pull you under. You're still physically alive. You're Still making money, making friends, but you're spiritually dead. And the pressure will build and it will build. And the prince of the power of the air and his forces will be pulling at your feet from underneath the water. Trying to drag you down. And your own weight, your own nature will naturally 
pull you under. And there's only one thing that will save you, and it's crying out. You have to cry out. It's not such a bad thing to cry out to God, to cry out to Jesus. I remember when Grayson was born. It was kind of traumatic. And for 30 seconds, and it felt like an eternity, we didn't hear his cry. And we wondered if there was something wrong. And we were weeping. And then he cried out. Crying out is a sign of life, not of death. That's what we do. We cry out so that God, by his grace, can save me. Not by my works, not by my good deeds, not by my effort, but by Jesus' works, by his good deeds, by his cross and his resurrection. And so you start by letting go. Wait, what? I'm holding on to this log, keep my head above water, barely. I never really told you how JR was saved. I didn't pull him back from whence he had come. You know what I did? I walked out to him. I said, trust me. Let go, and you'll go right underneath the log. And he let go, and his head dropped under the water, and he came up on the other side of the log, alive again. Look at verse 120. 120 says this. This is the great might of God that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Now drop down to verse 2. You were dead. And now look at 2.6. You were dead, and God raised us up with him. The way we experience the salvation of God is the same way Jesus experienced it. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. We must die, be buried, and rise again. If you've been to one of our baptisms, this is what we talk about. Dying to ourself, dying to our own works, being plunged into the water, buried with Christ, only to be raised up to walk in the new life, the resurrection life of Christ. J.R. experienced that in a small way. He went under and he came back to life. Praise be to God. This is how it happens, but we must cry out to God, let go of the striving, and allow Him to change us through His death and resurrection. Now, it's not just about being saved. There are things after our salvation. What are they? Look at verse 10. For... We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what's great. We've talked about how we are saved, what we are saved from, and now we see for what we are saved. For good works. Interesting, right? Because He's just said it's not by your works that you are saved, but you are saved for good works. This is so important. And this is often how God's plan works. That there are many things that are not bad in and of themselves only if they, they are bad, only if they are put in the wrong order. So we just have to get them in the right order. Sex. Riches. Good works. Get them out of order, they'll ruin you. Get them in the right order, they're blessings from God. This is how good works. 
God has made you for good works. He wants you to be involved in good works. And what is a good work? A good work is anything that is done for God's glory. Not your own. For God's glory. How? By God's grace. By His power at work in you. So, everything you do, everything you do, mowing the lawn, everything you do, if you are relying on the power of God's grace, if you are seeking as the highest aim God's glory, it is a good work. And you were created for that good work. Whatever you do. Sometimes uh, in church we can talk about this sacred-secular divide. There are sacred tasks that we can do, like preaching the gospel, sharing your faith, helping the poor. And then there are secular things that we do, like our jobs, making money, riding our bike. But what Paul is telling us here is that whatever we do, if we do it for God's glory, by God's grace, there is no high calling and low calling. It is all good work. So maybe you're a banker, or maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a real estate agent, a doctor, maybe you're even a politician. Maybe you're a mother, you're a father, a brother, a sister. If you're doing it, if you're living into those callings, if you're doing that work by the power of God's grace for the glory of God, you're doing a good work that God has made you to do. I hope you know that. I hope you don't ever feel like the work you're doing most of the week doesn't matter. It does. You were created to do it. God has made you. You are His workmanship to do those things by His power for His glory. Please, I hope you feel that. I hope you feel that joy. I hope, I ho- I hope you love your coworkers with God's grace. You know, Jesus himself spent more time doing good works as a carpenter than he did as a preacher. Most of his life he spent doing the good works that God had prepared beforehand for him to do, working with his dad as a carpenter. And then he spent three years preaching. It's all for the glory of God, no matter what it is. Good works prepared beforehand. Hope that's a breath of fresh air for you. This is what you've been created to do. Now, one final thing. Look at verse 1. It says this You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, what? You once walked. You once walked. Now, did you see that word again in verse 10? I want you to see what salvation does for you, how it shifts everything, because verse 10 tells us that we walk in the good works God has prepared for us. So we used to walk in our disobedience and our trespass and our sin, and now we walk in good deeds, good works prepared for us by God. My friends, this is the story of God. This is your story if you are a follower of Jesus. And it's a story that must be lived out in vivid contrast. I once was dead, now I'm alive. I once was a son of disobedience. Now I'm a son of the resurrection. I once was under the weight of Adam. Now I'm under the yoke of Jesus. My soul was once dead. My soul is now alive. I once was ruled by the bodily passions and desires of the flesh. Now I'm ruled by God's grace. I once obeyed the prince of the power, uh, uh, of, the power of the world. Now I obey the one who sits on the eternal throne. I once was an old, dying self, a child of wrath. Now I am a new, growing, heavenly self, a heavenly body, a child of God. See the contrast? It's amazing. There's been an epic shift. Our path has changed. We've been rescued. But yet, if we're honest, let's get honest for a sec, we very seldom live life with this vivid contrast. Often there's no contrast at all between the way we 
used to live and the way we live now. Oftentimes there's no big shift from then to now. Oftentimes we do not live as though we've been rescued. We live as though we are still slaves to sin. We live as though we are still guilty and ashamed. We live as though there's no hope beyond the presence of sin. I long for you to know that you've been saved, that you've been rescued, that your old story is not your new story, that you've been brought from death to life. I long for that for you. And it starts by letting God have control. It starts by crying out to him. It stops by or it starts by letting go of your striving, letting go of your expectation and just crying out to him, dying to self and being risen in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel. This is truly good news. This is truly unbelievable. And we can't actually believe it unless you give us the gift of faith. We pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith. We believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to see truly what mercy and love and grace look like. Help us to see truly and rightly what you have saved us from. Help us to start living vivid lives full of contrast from the then and the now. And help us to grow in holiness and righteousness and godliness, doing the good works that you've prepared for us to do. Help us to know what those are and to live into those fully by the power of your grace and for your glory alone. We pray this all in the marvelous, wondrous, saving name of Jesus. Amen.